I know you just stood, but if you would, would you, if you are able, would you stand with me again as we go to the text this morning? In an Eastern context, they did two things. They stood when they read the, the passage. It, able, it was able to distinguish the speaker's voice from the word of God. And the second thing they did was they said a prayer. It was a prayer of commitment, a prayer of, of passion, of, a prayer of dedication. Say, God, before we come to your text, before we hear your very words, we want to recommit ourselves once more. And they did it collectively as a group. So I'll invite you to say with or say after me this prayer called Shema in Deuteronomy 6. It says this, repeat after me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. We're in 1 Thessalonians today 2, uh, starting in verse 17, all the way to chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, But brothers and sisters, when we were torn away by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted and and it turned out that way, as you well know. This is the word of the God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's something in the suffering. During my college orientation freshman year, or should I say first year now, is that, is that better? In my first year in college, we were split into groups during our orientation and paraded around the campus in what they called color groups. And each group had a, a fun, special color that we were. And they paraded us around campus doing these cheesy Uh, team-building games. Has anyone ever, like in an office setting or or team setting, done one of these team-building exercises? Aren't they the worst? They're just, they're just the worst. And so a whole afternoon was what we thought wasted going around to all these different places and doing these team-building exercises. And every single one we went to, we openly mocked openly mocked them. It was like, there's lava on the floor, and you've got to get from one side to the next, and don't fall into lava. And we all thought we were such mature 18-year-old college kids, right? We're so mature for this. This is beneath me now, we thought, right? And so each and every one we went to, we mocked and ridiculed, and all afternoon we spent what felt like to us wasting our day when we could be unpacking our dorms or we could be getting our books ready. We weren't going to do that. But other things we might have been able to do on our college campus, and yet we were stuck in these color groups doing these terrible group exercises. But I will say this. By the end of it, and that night when we went to dinner, we knew who to sit with. We had someone to sit with. Because there's something in that. There's something, I'm convinced, 
that the hidden brilliance of most team building exercises is not in the actual activity, but in the unity that comes from hating it together. I'm convinced of it. We were at a, a group of us were at uh, the men's retreat last week, uh, and some of us were doing some elder training there. And uh, in order, at Camp Hickory Hill, in order to get your meal, you had to stand up and all sing a camp song and do all the hand motions. So imagine like a hundred men in a room, hungry, and there's Sam Richbar getting up and saying, all right, guys, we're doing a song. Who wants to do the hand motions, right? And everyone was like, oh, like, oh, I, I don't really want to do this. Okay, whatever. But there's a hidden brilliance to it. Because we bond over hating the hand motion. Sam Richbard is an evil genius. <laughs> He's been doing it for long enough that he knows you just put a little suffering involved, a little bit of uncomfortableness, and it brings a group together. There's something in the suffering. Bills fans, can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? In a sick, twisted way, our suffering as a fan base actually bring us closer together. We have all been through the heartbreaks, the failed draft picks, and of course, the drought. I was watching the final game of the regular season last year when, with some of my neighbors with a chance to end the 17-year drought. And it came down to one play actually from another game. We needed one team on that other, in that other game to lose. And if they lost, we made it. And so Western New Yorkers all around were glued to their televisions watching. And it got down to fourth and forever. Fourth down and forever. And there was no shot. It seemed like all hope was last, lost. And it felt like another chapter to the Bills fans' misery. And then... It happened. And if you were watching, in particular if you were watching with a group of people, there was something special that happened. They actually have reactions to it. So take a look at the screen. Here's some reactions to the play that broke our suffering and got us into the playoffs. Take a look. I 
think my favorite is the guy holding the chair above his head for no reason whatsoever. He just didn't know what to do with his hands. So he just lifted it up over his head in celebration. Like I said, I was watching the game with some neighbors, and we've been only there for a a couple years now. And when that play happened, we all jumped to our feet, jumped up and down, and I openly embraced my neighbor. We were hugging and jumping What other context ever would I be hugging another grown man and jumping up and down other than this? Because there's something in the suffering, right? There's something in the suffering that gets people excited, that brings people together. This section of Thessalonians reveals a great adoration and celebration that Paul has for the Thessalonians. When you read this this part of Thessalonians, you just can see how much Paul loves these Thessalonians. But we can't lose the context for which it comes. And a few verses earlier tells us, in verse 14, it says this, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your own people the same things those churches suffered. And so when people are suffering together, for a common goal and a common purpose. It brings people together. So this adoration and this love comes under the context of suffering. And we actually see that later on in, 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 this, in this passage. He says, hey, we told you it was going to happen, and, it, and surely it did. But man, how much adoration and celebration we have for you in the midst of it. Like Bill's fans, this incredible admiration is rooted in the suffering they share together. So let's dig in, because I think we're going to begin to see as we read this passage some things that flow out of this. When, when we suffer together, when we suffer together, there's these things that start to happen in a community. And I think Paul hits on some of these things, and I think they'll be helpful for us to see, because there's something in the suffering. So let's take a look. Starting right at the beginning, And this will be your first fill-in this morning, or your second one in this. There's something in the suffering that grows love. There's something in the suffering that just grows our love. It says this, but brothers and sisters, when we were torn away by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. I want us to take a look at some of the language here, because Paul uses some language here really intentionally, and it really shows us what it is that he is communicating here. First off, notice it says, uh, and perhaps if you're looking at a pew Bible or in other versions, it will say, we were torn away from you. But the word in the Greek is the word orphanos, which means to orphan, orphanos. So Paul's saying here, not just that we were torn away, we were orphaned by you. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 7, Paul says, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Now, four verses later on that, he says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And so he's using this family language. We, we treated you like a mother. We, we, we disciplined you like a father. We have tender love for you. And so when we were forced to separate, it felt like we were orphaned. To say I was torn away means one thing, but to say orphaned has a different tone, doesn't it? 
And so it shows this um, intimate and important relationship to them. One of the most, if not the most intimate and important relationships in the world. A parent and a child. And this is how it feels when we are separated from you. He goes on to say that we were separated from you in a short time, not in physically, but not in thought. But the word there actually is cardia. It's where we get the word cataract. It's a heart. It's the meaning of the heart. So we didn't just, we didn't just uh, uh, remove from our physical and into our thought, but actually you were in our heart. We weren't ripped apart from you in heart. He says, you're in my heart. He says, I love you with all my heart. We use the same language, but we don't say it to everyone, right? I, say, I don't say to my mailman that he's in my heart. He doesn't give me my, my thing, and I say, thank you. I love you with all my heart. He'd be like, okay, and then, you know, he'd walk across the street and and leave, right? I don't say to my grocer, you're in my heart today, man, right? That'd be a little weird, right? We say this, we use this language of heart and being in someone's heart when they're intimately close to us and connected, our family, our close friends. So he says we are separated in, in physicalness, in person, but not in my heart, not in my heart. And then he says this, he says, I abundantly hastened in earnest to see you. He doesn't say that uh, uh, exactly, but he uses three different words that mean like, really got to have it. He uses three Greek words here when only one would do, right? He could say our desire, is to see, our desire to see you was abundant. He could say our desire to see you was hastened. He could have said our desire to see you was in earnest, but instead he uses all three to make the point. It's sort of like my, my daughter. Sometimes she just gets like, she's a very like emotional girl. She just really feels things deeply. And so sometimes I go, Dad, I, I really, really, really love you. When you get three reallys, you know it's good. That's what Paul's saying here. He could have used one of these words. He used all three. I really, really, really wanted to see you because you're in my heart and I feel orphaned when you're not here. And then he said, my desire is to be with you. I really want to. Furthermore, then Paul goes on to say that it took Satan himself to stop him from coming to them. Isn't that interesting? He's like, I was going to come. Hey, I I was going to be there. Satan held me up, right? That doesn't usually work as a good excuse in most days, right? You go to your boss, you're like 15 minutes late. You're like, listen, I was trying to, but Satan had a traffic jam cooking up. And what am I going to do? Like, Satan, what are you and I think what, what we're supposed to take of this, because it, it's funny when you think about it, I think what we're supposed to take of it is, have you ever heard the expression, I would move heaven and earth to get there? Well, it took hell to stop Paul. It took hell to stop Paul. That he said, I made every effort, and it took the powers of another realm to stop me from coming. I tried to move heaven, I tried to move earth, and it took hell itself to stop me. Because my love for you has grown so much. Our love for each other has grown so much because there's something in the suffering that grows love. We joke that suffering, the suffering of a Bills fan, and we joke about corny icebreakers and how they actually bring people together. But how much more for a military unit on the front lines? How much more for the church in China? 
how much more for Paul and these Thessalonians. You see, there's something in the suffering that grows love. Another thing that it does is that it brings significance. It brings significance. He goes on to say this, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Now, Paul asked this question. Now, imagine that Paul was in your Sunday school class, right? And he asked this very question. He goes, hey, uh, uh, guys, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown? What would we answer? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? So it's funny. He asked this question. Like, what is your hope? What is your joy? What is your crown of glory? And you would think the answer was, well, obviously it's Jesus, but that's not the answer. He says, it's you, the Thessalonians. You, he says, are my joy and and my glory. What's going on here? When scripture talks about crown, I think that the key here is the crown, the idea of the crown. You are a crown of glory. Because we've say, we say this to people too, right? We say like, you're my joy, you're my love. I, I, I'm really hoping that that happens, right? We, we'll say that. And that, that makes a little sense maybe, that, that Paul's saying, listen, you're my hope, you're my joy, like we're so encouraged by you. But then he says, you are the crown of glory, our crown of glory. Now when scriptures talk about crowns, more often than not, they were referring to a wreath that was given to winning athletes, like what we think of as trophy. So when you see a crown here, really the best image in our day would be something like a trophy. Now I want to show you a trophy that currently I possess. Right here. This is, this is the trophy that sits in my office. Now uh, sometimes, a couple times probably a week, uh, late in the day when we just need a brain break, brain break, some of us in the office go upstairs to the youth room and play ping pong. All right, we like to play ping pong there. It gets, just kind of brushes the cobwebs off and gets us, get us moving a little bit before we close out the day. And a while back, we jimmy-rigged this trophy. I even pasted a little, uh, a little ping pong ball here on the, top of, on the top of it. And we've said, basically, whoever wins the game of ping pong gets to have the trophy in their office. And so this trophy will go around to different people in the office depending on who is the latest uh, winner. So if you ever come into the office, just poke your head in and see who's got the trophy, and that is the person who has, is currently the champion of it. So we've got our ping pong uh, trophy. It's currently in my office, so I'm very proud of that. So I didn't have to swipe it from anyone else. Yes, thank you for the singular clap. Thank you, Aaron. The so- oh, don't give me your pity claps now. Don't give me your pity claps now. But the point of a trophy, right, when you think about the point of a trophy, it's not, the point isn't the thing itself, right? This is plastic, a little stone, and some wood, right? This itself is not valuable at all. The only thing that's valuable about a trophy is what it signifies, what it represents, what an accomplishment you did, and then the trophy is kind of a physical representation of what it is that you accomplished, right? It would be really weird if you went out and bought a trophy for no reason and put it on your mantle, Right? If somebody came over and was like, oh, what's the trophy for? And you were just like, ah, I just like trophies. They'd be like, what? 
Okay, nobody puts a trophy up or displays a trophy and have no meaning or accomplishment behind that. That would be weird because we understand what a trophy is supposed to do. It's supposed to signify an accomplishment that you've done. And Paul says, I think of you Thessalonians. I came to you in three weeks and preached the gospel and you received it with joy. And even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of everything you knew would happen, you said yes to Jesus. And now we'll find out next week, now you're flourishing. You are my trophy. You are my trophy. You are my significance. It's not in the miracles. It's not in the sermons. It's not in any influences I've gone around in this region and, and collected. None of that matters. That's not significant at all compared to when I look at you and I see the value. I see the significance. You are my crown. You are my trophy. Just this week as I was preparing uh, this and came across this message, I was compelled uh, before I was here and in Rochester, I spent five years, Molly and I moved uh, to Boston right out of college, and we spent five years working with students. I was a youth pastor there uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, it was a tough transition. We were newly married, newly out of school, wet behind our ears, had no idea how to do anything. We moved into apartment, uh, 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 a tiny one-bedroom apartment over the top of a garage and uh, didn't even know where the grocery store is when we got there. And we, bent five, we spent five years creating a life for us out there. And I think I've got, a, I've got a picture here of me. So this is me, my very first day in, uh, some, in uh, uh, doing uh, youth ministry. There I am over there in the corner. That's me. Uh, I was 22 years old. And literally my first day was I pulled in and I jumped on the bus to our summer camp. That was my initiation. Like, hey, the new guy's here. Get on the bus. And so I got on the bus, and these are all these kids uh, that I had no idea who they were. Uh, that was the day I started to grow facial hair because they all thought I was a high schooler. They all were like, who's the new kid? And literally, someone sat next to me and was like, so, like, what school do you go to? And I was like, all right, I got, I got to do something here. I got to look a little older here. But these are the students that I worked with for five years and walked them through. Some of them started out coming to this camp at seventh and eighth grade, and then when I, uh, when I left Boston, they were uh, juniors and seniors, seeing them graduate from college. And I was just compelled, as I was writing this message, I was compelled to reach out to them. So I found each and every one of them. I just wrote a note that said, hey, a lot of you guys, and what's kind of mind-blowing for me now, and I'm not an old man, but now these kids are starting to get married. Now these kids are starting. In fact, we got a wedding invitation to two of them who are getting married to each other uh, for this summer. They're launching out. They're graduating. They're getting married. And I just felt this, uh, this, this just a compelling, uh, overwhelming nature to reach out to them and say, guys, I'm so proud of you. Because for the most part, as I've watched from afar, they have followed after God. And they're going into business, and they're going into politics, and they're going into uh, ministry, and they're going to make an impactful a nature to the kingdom. And I just said, guys, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of what you're doing. And I look on these guys and I go, that's my crown right there. These guys that are going to do some amazing thing. I'll look back on my ministry and they're the people I'll think of. They're the ones 
that I'll say, man, that's my crown. That's my trophy. It wasn't in the sermons. It wasn't in the uh, youth trips. It wasn't in the corny games that we played. It's seeing these guys go out into the world loving Jesus and making an, an impact for the kingdom. And how much love I have for them and how much significance anything that I was able to do. And I know that there were many, many, many people who walked with them. It wasn't just me. They have a cloud of witnesses around them that walked with them, loved them, showed them away. I was just a piece of that. But man, if there's any sliver to my ministry that was significant, it's them. And my hope is in the future, if there's any significance to what I do, any significance to what you do, it's not in the programming, it's not in the packaging, it's not in the products, but it's in the people. And that is our significance. And that will be each and every one of our crowns someday. We will all have crowns of the people that God, through his spirit, through his name, because we can't do it ourselves. It's not because I was great. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're some holy person. It's not because I'm some holy person. It's enabled by the Holy Spirit that we get to be part of people's lives. And we get to make a difference. And the grace of God allows us to wear a crown of the names of those that we were able to walk with. There's something in the suffering that brings significance. There's something in the suffering that brings significance. Finally, if suffering grows love, if suffering brings significance, suffering also requires support. It requires support. It says this, We sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker, in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Now, this might be the most obvious point I make, but suffering is hard. It's difficult, and it weighs you down at time, and everybody needs the support of someone else or a community of people to come alongside and say, we encourage you, we're going to strengthen you, we're going to be there for you so that you don't feel unsettled anymore. Now, he uses some interesting word choices. To strengthen means to, to, to stabilize. It literally means like getting both feet on the ground and making sure that you're, you're in a nice uh, locked position. I want to strengthen you. Uh, some translation might say in, uh, uh, to uh, uh, embark or, or establish you. I want to establish you, keep you strong and keep you secure, keep you uh, uh, stable in your ways. And then Timothy, they say that we sent Timothy because we didn't want you to be unsettled. Now, literally, I love this. Literally, the word means the wag of a dog's tail. We didn't want you to be like the wag of a dog's tail. On Friday, sadly, the Gross family, who's part of our community, said goodbye to their golden retriever after many, many years together. His name was Murphy. And in a farewell message on Facebook, Holly uh, posted a sweet video of, Mur- of Murphy greeting Dan after a nine-month deployment. He's in the military, and he went off for a nine-month deployment. And they got video of Murphy meeting, uh, seeing Dan for the first time after nine months. And that dog almost <laughs> tackled him. I mean, he was so excited to see him. And you should have seen that dog's tail wag. Wag, 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 wag. Wag, wag. He was so excited to see him. Wag, 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 wag. 
Now, that's a, that's a, it was a sweet video, and it was really wonderful to see. But what Paul is saying is that when it comes to your spiritual maturity, spiritual grounding, we actually don't want you to be like that. Bouncing back and forth, moving around, doing that. We, you, you seem unsettled, and we're going to send Timothy to, to stabilize you, to get both of your feet back on the ground. There's something in the suffering that requires support. And so our active participation in the life of the church isn't just for your benefit. You are not here just for yourself. We need each other. We need the support of an entire community because there are times in life where we will all feel like a dog's tail. Life is bouncing. Life is spinning. We can't get our feet on the ground. And we need people with a godly perspective to stabilize us and keep us secure. Because there's something in the suffering that requires support. It grows our love. It brings significance. And it requires support. I'll invite the band up as we finish. So let me ask some questions of us. Are we a place that is growing in love for one another? Are we a community that is growing in love for one another? A while back, we were in an elective course and talking about the cost of following Jesus. We were on this topic. And one example was given of the potential cost of being rejected by a family. Now, I basically shrugged it off, assuming that no one in the room had personally experienced this until Marilyn Urschel spoke. Tears. She shared her story of essentially her family turning her back on her when she said yes to Jesus. And the air went out of the room. Because she said yes the same thing I said yes to. She said yes to the same thing we all said yes to. And so when something, someone suffers in that way, we grow in love. And Miss Marilyn, I fell in love with you a little more that day. Are we a place of significance? What are our trophies? Are we proud of the programs and the products and the packaging? Or is our joy in the people here at Randall? We want to put on good programs. We want to make sure communication is clear. But at the end of the day, when we all get to heaven, will our community look around and say, our crowns, we're the people. Who is your crown? And the beauty of it all is that we are given a picture of what we will do with our crowns at the end of days. It says this in Revelation. Take a look. Surrounding the throne were 34 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy 
our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. You see, the Sunday school answer is Jesus because in the end we lay all of our crowns at the feet of Jesus. All of our accomplishments, all the things that we've done, all the people we've influenced, in the end we recognize, we take it off and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because he is our ultimate glory and honor and joy. Sing with me. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We cry. 